0: Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems, for their support of our series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. My name is Becca Wasser, and I am a Fellow in the Defense Program
1: and co-lead of the Gaming Lab at a Center for New American Security.
0: So as you all know, Lindsay ditched me and has left CSIS. And so I'm just so glad and thankful to have Becca with us today for this episode. She is absolutely brilliant hysterical and a lover of Muppets in space. So, you know, there'll be a lot of fun to talk about. And we are going to have a great conversation with General Pringle and Colonel Diller about the Air Force. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast. This week, we are so excited to talk with two incredible service members in the Air Force. First is General Heather Pringle. She's the commander of the Air Force Research Laboratory, or AFRL. Hey, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here with us. And next, we have Colonel Nate Diller. He is a director of AFWorks.
2: Thanks a lot, Caitlin. Looking forward to the discussion.
0: But I did look up AFWorks to see if it was an acronym, and I don't think it is. It is actually just a very cool name. You got it. So far on Tech on Man, we have covered a variety of technology-specific episodes. We've dove into AI and machine learning, hypersonic weapons, my favorite, space sensing and satellite servicing because I'm a space expert, quantum, biotech, software acquisition. I mean, we were just deep in the tech. We've also done a couple of issue areas surrounding the technologies themselves, like the STEM workforce or the somewhat complicated relationship between DC and Silicon Valley. Both of these I think we'll get into today of how the Air Force addresses these issues. But I would really love just your perspective and your organization's perspective on emerging technologies and what is on your minds as you work these issues every day. So maybe to start off, you both can give us a quick intro into your organization and its mission. And General Pringle would love for you to kick us off.
3: Well, thanks again, Caitlin. I've been at the Air Force Research Lab a little over a year, and every day has been absolutely amazing, full of surprise by the workforce and just doing a lot of great things. I like to say that the research lab is a strategic asset in science and technology for our department. We have state-of-the-art facilities across the United States and partnerships around the world. We have over 6,000 scientists, engineers, and technology-focused professionals. So ultimately, we are the innovative engine for both the Air Force and the Space Force. We discover groundbreaking science. We develop cutting edge technologies and ultimately deliver them to both airmen and guardians who are part of the Air and Space Force. Great. And
0: Colonel Diller, if you could just tell us quickly about what AFWorks is, because I know it's part of AFRL, but it has a really specific, unique mission.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we had the opportunity to join AFRL just over 18 months ago since I became part of the organization. And so it's been great to reach into the great technical depth that General Pringle spoke to. As a part of AFRL, we have a very specific role looking at how we can transition agile, affordable, and Accelerate capabilities, making sure that we are combining the innovative tech developers that are out there, and that includes both the government and the commercial sector, with a lot of focus on that commercial, the startup community, and doing that in a way that is teamed with our airmen and our guardian talent. So like the rest of it, Air Force Research Laboratory, we are supporting both the Air Force, those airmen that are out there, and the guardians uh, as part of our Space Force. And so we do that through really three key lines of effort. One is AFF Ventures that reaches out to those technology developers. The other is Spark that is bringing together that network of innovators across Guardians and our Airmen. And then the last is Prime, which once we identify those great technologies and align them with the needs and concepts of our Airmen, we make sure that they actually transition into the field. And so working across those three lines of effort in conjunction across all of the Air Force Research Laboratory.
1: Wow, thanks so much for that uh, really helpful introduction. We want to sort of kick things off by delving a little bit deeper into the meaty topic of modernization. So about a year ago or so, General Brown, who is the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, laid out sort of three main modernization priorities. And sort of the buckets that I've seen them grouped in tend to be nuclear modernization. So specifically U.S. strategic bombers, which make up the Air Force's leg of the nuclear triad, The second one being Advanced Battle Management System, or ABMS. And, you know, this is the Air Force's next generation command and control system. And it really seeks to connect every sensor with every shooter in support of JADC2 or Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And then the last one, which isn't necessarily a program like the other two, but more of a process reform and one that I think is probably near and dear to both of your hearts, which is trying to develop more cutting edge acquisition methods. And the aim here is to allow the Air Force to buy better, newer, more affordable platforms and equipment. So looking across all of these modernization priorities, I'm really sort of wondering about how they fit into both some of the extant and newer operational concepts that both the Air Force and the Joint Force are advancing. You know, more specifically, how is it that these new systems and process overhauls, how are they going to enhance the Air Force's ability to perform, for example, Agile Combat Employment or ACE? If you're looking more about the Air Force's contribution to the Joint Force, how is it that these are going to actually support the ability of the Air Force to implement the Joint Warfighting concept, for example? We'd love your thoughts
3: on this. Good question, Becca. I think the right place to start with those capabilities is really at the beginning. What are we trying to accomplish and what are we trying to support in terms of the enduring tenets of warfare that maintain the United States as both a global air and space power today? So if you think about it, we have to maintain the capability to sense and share information around the globe. Through air and space and cyber, we organize the information and we have to make timely decisions and we have to generate lethality at the time and place of our choosing and no matter the domain and you mentioned mobility and logistics as important areas as well. So what we do at the research lab is we take those tenets and then we focus in on where we may have capability gaps. We meet with warfighters and we discuss what matters most to you given the capabilities that you have today and where do you want to be five, 10 years from now. And so we generate solutions with them through a variety of means, which we can talk about a little bit later. But if we take those capabilities and then those gaps, and then we bring our scientists and engineers together in that same room and we focus in on what technology solutions are going to help them the most. So let's take global awareness where you're trying to get continuous and timely knowledge of your adversaries, where they are and what they're doing. So some capabilities or technologies that you might look to pursue are microelectronics or photonics, for example. If you're looking to share information You want to coordinate across joint assets with assured communications, and you want to give them precise location and timing information. So position navigation and timing technologies are really important to pursue. Quantum information science is really helpful in this area as well. To make decisions faster than your adversaries, you could leverage big data and big data analytics to bring together all the points of information and then even build it into autonomous capabilities or use artificial intelligence tools to bring together a better picture for warfighters to understand what's going on outside. And then, of course, to generate lethality or add complexity or unpredictability in mass, there are a variety of technologies that we're pursuing there. Collaborative autonomy, autonomous swarms, for example, digital and additive manufacturing help us uh, generate lethality and affordable price points or hypersonics and directed energy. So those are just a couple examples that support those warfighting concepts that you brought up earlier. But one thing I did want to mention as well, and we can talk about it a little bit later, in addition to each of those technology efforts that support the bigger capabilities, right? We don't want to be constrained by what the technology is today, we have to think about what do we want to be able to accomplish in the future. And that's why focusing on the warfighting capabilities is so important. And we have a couple of big bets called vanguards, if you're interested. Colonel Diller, do you have anything that you want to add on those points?
2: Sure. So as we've approached this over the genesis of AFWERX, it started out Really with a shift in culture, uh, a shift in culture, really to think about how do we drive collaboration, collaboration first from our airmen uh, and our guardians, and then eventually that collaboration in the broader industrial Space And so I had a couple of years worked on the joint staff uh, as a branch chief for air and space requirements and had a chance to play globally integrated war game. And when you look at some of the operational challenges that are out there, I think often what you find, there are some of these things that maybe we think a bit more mundane, uh, like logistics, for example, and being able to conduct distributed logistics, uh, like the things that connect our force through comms. I had a chance to work at the GPS program office and the challenge of ensuring that we have the most state-of-the-art position, navigation and timing system in each of our different platforms is, is a huge, huge challenge. And so as we look into the future, we have our leaders in the Air Force talking about how do we make sure that this is a whole of nation effort. And part of that, we believe in effort comes from this culture change of being able to, to some degree, step with a little bit more humility and recognition that our airmen are closest to the problem really have some phenomenal solutions that are out there, that many of the companies that are out there in the startup world that maybe have never considered work with the Department of Defense actually have some great ideas if we leave some opportunity and leave a right as, as we're working to do here, we do some of the jargon and, and create an open door for them. And and be able to operate at speeds that allow them. So what that's allowed is in this culture piece is a broader collaboration. And in that broader collaboration, essentially, some different approaches to capability development that I think in many cases, when you look at the technologies that we've invested in, end up being things that are in the commercial sector, where we see some 80% of all research and development happening with these commercial technologies, how do we ensure that we're able to leverage these commercial technologies? And the thing that's exciting, and it's actually happening this week, they're close to General Pringle. We have under our agility prime program, companies that are developing, and we can talk in more detail, but electric vertical takeoff and landing capabilities in Pursuit is thought to be a very, very lucrative commercial market. This week, they're flying with the Air Force Research Laboratory and a lot of the Sky Vision technologies that they've developed, flying in the local airspace with the FAA. And that's just one of many types of technologies that happen in the commercial sector that we've been able to bring in to Afworks. And the thing that, that I think is also exciting is many of these companies will tell you some of the greatest things that have happened to them over the last 18 months of engagement is the opportunity to work closely with the scientists and engineers internal to AFRL who've accelerated this commercial piece at paces that they actually didn't realize. So it's that collaboration that comes from that culture change that I really think starts to open up some of these new concepts and approaches to these new concepts and and development of concepts that aren't even out there yet. And that's the part that's been, I think, very exciting and really has phenomenal promise going forward.
0: That's super
1: interesting. You know, you mentioned wargaming, which is a subject near and dear to my heart. And one of the cooler things that I've gotten to do is actually do some more games that have focused on ways in which we can incorporate some of the big bet technologies, as well as some of these perhaps smaller scale technologies that could actually change the scope of what happens on the battlefield. But sort of thinking through that, you know, I wanted to ask you both, you talked a little bit about some cool programs, some of the big bets, From both of your vantage points, what do you see as sort of the future focused technologies or programs that you happen to find most exciting and the ones that you think are going to have the greatest ability to perhaps reshape the Air Force or even warfighting more generally?
3: Well, I'm happy to jump in as a starting point. Those vanguards that I mentioned earlier really are exciting efforts where we have our scientists and technologists partner with the acquisition community so that we can iterate faster and look at ways to get technology to the field quicker. And so, Let me give you a couple examples of what those technology areas are. In fact, we have very few. We only have four at this point in time because they are such big, momentous efforts and kind of a whole of the department focus on them, approved by the Secretary of the Air Force level. So one that was approved just in June of this year was called Rocket Cargo, and it's looking to deliver 100 tons of cargo anywhere on the planet in less than an hour. That's a huge amount of logistics to bring to any kind of mission that we might want. And one of the things where we think it might be especially helpful is humanity. Humanitarian efforts, humanitarian lift, where you want to get supplies to an austere site on short notice and a whole lot of it. I think that would be really helpful. But we have a couple other areas that are big bets from our portfolio. One is called Skyborg, and that's an autonomous unmanned vehicle that teams with a manned air vehicle and allows an opportunity to further the reach or any type of mission that we might want to partner with pilots or other operators in terms of forward sensing or use as a comm relay or any number of missions. So that Skyborg vehicle is really a fun one that's doing a lot of progress with my partner, the PEO for Advanced Aircraft and Fighters, Brigadier General Dale White. We also have a big bet or a vanguard called Golden Horde, and that swarmed munitions, basically looking at how can we have collaborative weapons that are networked, that maybe have different roles in their mission, go after different targets, or that they collaboratively look at how to um, get after their targets and meet it at the same time. And that's a really promising one. And then the one that we also have with the Space Force, in addition to rocket cargo, and that's NTS-3 or Navigation Technology Satellite 3. It's basically a next generation for position navigation and timing. And it incorporates a number of over 100 experiments up in space on this really unique satellite, as well as a ground component. It's got the whole system. And so we're really excited about that technology as well. And Nate, I know you have a couple as well.
2: Absolutely. Just to continue on that space theme. So we had the chance last week of launching Orbital Prime, which follows the same methodology as Agility Prime. This idea that there's technologies that are out there relatively high technical readiness level, but for a variety of reasons, haven't necessarily come together to provide the capability. And so Orbital Prime is our first space prime. And with this Orbital Prime, we're looking to do orbital degree mitigation. As you look into the future and you see the number of satellites that are being launched to create some really phenomenal capabilities from sensing to communications, eventually it's hard to imagine a world where we can continue to put things in orbit without making sure that we are able to also keep those orbits clean from the debris that's up there and the risk that it that poses to very expensive satellites and really exciting capabilities for us. Orbital Prime launches us really into that approach Looking at one of a small subset of what we see, these on-orbit servicing, assembling, and manufacturing, this OCM capability, uh, this is really step one into that. And so similar to Agility Prime, we will be releasing a small business technology transfer approach. So looking to put tens to hundreds of companies on contract In these early research and development. And the thing that's exciting about those is they pair small businesses with universities. And so this really starts to touch on an opportunity to start shaping the workforce towards these types of technologies. That certainly is one. I mentioned the other Agility Prime is our first prime program. We now have four aircraft that are certified, the first aircraft certified for human flight, electric aircraft certified for human flight in the Department of Defense, moving that program forward quickly to look at things like disaster response, like logistics, contested logistics, being able to do distributed operations, personnel recovery. And across that board, very, very important civil use cases that we're working with NASA closely with. And like I said, we have actually five aircraft performers that are out in Ohio this week uh, doing some of those flights. And some of the simulators in conjunction with the state of Ohio and with NASA. So this, this interagency piece, I think, is important as we think of this whole of government effort moving forward those technologies. And when we look at the technologies associated with those two, two prime programs, right, very deeply embedded, you see artificial intelligence, you see autonomy, you see electrification, you see advanced propulsion techniques both on orbit and with this electric propulsion. So I think to keep our technical edge, these really start to touch those really critical technologies moving forward.
0: Well, you both just touched on several of our previous podcast issue areas, which is fantastic. So our audiences are well aware of like what OSAM is and how the commercial industry and the government are really pushing that technology as well as kind of the vulnerabilities that GPS faces. And so investment in PNT and in having a more robust and resilient constellation or ground segment there. I want to dive a little bit deeper into the role of research and development. General Pringle, you have mentioned previously about the S and T 2030 strategy, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk to you more about what that strategy says and how it interacts with research and development and these emerging technologies in particular.
3: I'm glad you asked that, Caitlin, because the S and T 2030 strategy was published in 2019, April of 2019, and that caused the Air Force Research Lab to take a hard look at itself, how it was conducting business, and how do we need to change to meet the dynamic world around us. And so it had three major objectives, and it was to develop and deliver transformational technology, change the way that science and technology is managed and led, and third is to deepen and expand the scientific and technology enterprise. I tell you, we took that to heart and we did backflips to change all aspects of our business model, our value proposition, our organization, and a whole host of things. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why AFWERX is now part of our Air Force Research Lab family. It's why we stood up an office called the Transformational Capabilities Office. They're the group that oversees our big bets that I was talking about. They look at multidisciplinary science and technology. They bring together the acquirers with the warfighters so that we take a holistic look at emerging technology and our posturing those most exciting technologies for the next or the future of Vanguard technologies. So that's been really exciting for changing the way how our science and technology enterprises managed and led on the Space Force side, for example, they stood up a chief of technology and innovation officer or a CTIO. And that has been a focal point for driving our space science and technology portfolio. Under the research lab, in particular, I stood up a deputy for space science and technology as well. And that person oversees our whole entire portfolio for space S&T and has been a huge boon to us understanding and getting a big, a better grasp of everything that's going on across AFRL in space science and technology. And then there's a whole lot of things that we did to support our workforce. We did a study to look at the future of the workforce in 2030 and we backcast some of those challenges into actionable steps that we could take today. So there's a whole lot of depth that the 2030 strategy drove us to take a whole lot of actions and I'll I'll just kind of sum it up with saying that the research lab is not the same research lab that we were a year and a half ago. We've we've just done so much to change and we're really excited about the future.
0: And they say you can't change big organizations. And both of you have focused on change and culture change, which I love to hear. Colonel Diller, I want to dive into something that you brought up of your organization, partnering businesses with universities, companies with government scientists I know that you all are headlining these transitions from technologies to the warfighter, from commercial investment to the government. And in the past episodes, AF Ventures has been mentioned as a really great partner in this and is is doing some really unique work leveraging private capital for co-investment as a funding model. Could you talk to us about this technology transition and about what new partnerships the Air Force is able to leverage because of these kind of new small models that that you all are testing
2: out? Absolutely. And to be clear, one of the things that we've done in this transition that General Pringle was speaking to, so AFWARTS is responsible for This small business technology transfer and small business innovation research funding that's out there, there's part of it that continues to be very much focused on some of the very specific technologies that you're not necessarily going to find from a broader commercial sector. So we continue to keep some focus in that area. And that's, that goes out to the different technical directorates for execution in that way. There's been an, another set of funding on the open topic that I'll talk to more. And we've opened that up pretty dramatically. The last piece is from both a specific topic perspective and that open topic perspective. Another major innovation is being able to scale and being able to take, in many instances, companies that started with a $50,000 contract, taking them to a $50 million contract in the course of a year. And so that speed is very necessary, but it, it, you can only get to that speed if you have the professionals in the, the technologies that are able to assess the technologies that are there, the acquires understanding if it can actually be brought across that proverbial valley of death, as well as the warfighter that says, yes, there is indeed a need to do this. And so from that perspective, one of the approaches we've taken is that open topic. And so that open topic, it's an opportunity three times a year where With the broader small business administration approach that we have in the Department of Defense, we take approximately a thousand small 50 ish thousand dollar contracts a year through that open topic program across a a variety of different sectors. They're evaluated by our warfighters, by our technologists and by our acquirers. Then once they have these short, we call them kind of these viability studies, does the technology that you have have a, a match for our department of the air force of those about 300 then advanced forward into a phase two, which is then a prototyping contract on the order of a million dollars in order to advance to that phase two, there must be a memorandum, both from the warfighter saying there's a demand for this technology, as well as the acquirer saying, we we actually have a path to buy this technology. And those, those then are often about a two year effort uh, on the prototyping. If those have a lot of promise, then we have an arrangement with the small business administration where we can spend up to $15 million of SBIR funding in conjunction with matching funding. And if it's a defense-specific, it's matching funding just from the government or matching funding from an external entity. And as we've done that, what we found is since AppWorks has stood up, we're getting a follow-on funding to this initial SBIR funding on the order of $11 for every dollar that's spent from the SBIR program. It's separately, what that's allowed us to do, about 1,800 companies, that have come in through that program. Of those 1800 companies, 70% have never worked with the Department of the Air Force before. And so when we look at expanding the trade space of technologies that are out there, making companies aware that not only is the DOD a great market, but many times what we found is that just the engagement with the technologists in AFRL the engagement with our warfighters, we actually have brought to light other markets that maybe they had not considered and been able, to, in many cases, to accelerate some of the technology development in order to make sure that, again, from a whole-of-nation perspective, we're bringing forward anyone who is interested and willing to work with the Air Force into some of these most difficult problems that our airmen and guardians face.
1: General Pringle, I actually want to get your perspective on the you know, this technology transition issue and how it is that you sort of work it with the rest of AFRL. On Tech Unmanned, a lot of the episodes have touched on the Valley of Death issue at CNAS, where I work. Our defense program actually has a project that is trying to overcome this issue called Unfinished Business and Defense Innovation. But the one thing that I've learned from that project is that there are just so many different viewpoints on this issue, whether you are sitting as an industry partner, whether you are sitting at the Department of the Air Force, for example, or whether you're a warfighter in the field. So, you know, getting your perspective on sort of how you view the issue and how AFRL writ large is trying to deal with it would be really useful.
3: I think you're right. We all may have different takes on or approaches to how you get out of the valley of death, but one thing we can all agree on is that we need to get the most innovative technology out of the lab and into the field. So bottom line, that's the overall goal. And it's important to partner with all the individuals that take part in this process. So from a laboratory standpoint, there are a couple hypotheses, if you will, that you could take to get something out of the lab and fielding at scale. So the AFWERX approach is one, and we absolutely want to support that, right? You generate a market in the commercial world and you infuse it with military requirements so that it's at the ready at the time that you need it at some point in the future the vanguards that i mentioned are another way that you can do it we partner technologists with acquirers and warfighters and get them iterating and communicating on a very frequent basis it causes the scientists and engineers to accelerate what they're working on and not just keep working on it to limit for longer periods of time. And the acquirers get insights on the technologies, what's coming down the pike sooner. And so that kind of greases the skids, if you will, sooner than it would have if we just threw it over the transom. So that's an important relationship. But we're doing other things as well to bridge all those individuals together that have a role in getting technologies from the lab to the field. So you mentioned uh, war games. We have a science and technology war game where we bring the technologies that we're looking at. We're trying to see how might it operate in a virtual environment. We have the warfighters give us feedback on how to make those adjustments. We have designated what we call mission area leads. And those are basically technology partners to our warfighters in specific areas. They go out to the different major combatant commands and they talk about the technologies that are in the lab at the bench and they talk with warfighters and they say, "Okay, this is what we have. Can you use it in this operational context? And so those kinds of communications are really vital to bridging the gap and making the technologies relevant sooner and addressing those constraints and requirements that warfighters have that sometimes the scientists and engineers need to incorporate sooner in their development.
0: Well, and I feel like we've been talking about people a lot. And so I just want to outright ask, I know General Brown has emphasized empowering people as part of his Accelerate, Change, or Lose strategy. A couple of weeks ago, we had our STEM talent episode. I really learned that it's not just about recruiting good talent, it's about retaining it. And so I wanted to ask you both, as you work in these high-powered and highly educated lead these organizations, you know, how do you look at supporting those people to make sure that they feel like they can do their best, best work?
3: None of the technology would happen without uh, the great folks that we have on our teams. So I'm really glad that you asked. It's the chief got it right when he said that it revolves around. So we in Air Force Research Lab, we have both airmen and guardians and i mean that in terms of uniform personnel as well as civilians we we've got it all we have developed a human capital strategy in fact it was just released last month and it is to support our team and to get them the development that they need. It's to help us focus on being an inclusive work environment and developing the diversity of thought and diversity of experience that we need across our workforce. It's to help us be more agile and supportive and collaborative across all our different locations of the research lab. It, so we do things like get coffee with the commander and I bring together a young airman who's in Florida with laser scientists in Albuquerque. And the engagements that we have are just so exciting. About two weeks ago, there was a geek fest that was virtual. And we had well over 600 of our junior newest participants or our newest additions to our Air Force Research Lab team. And they came together and they talked about the technology portfolios that they're overseeing. And so we don't have water coolers like we used to in the old days, but these kinds of events are so important to breaking down barriers and and kind of making the virtual environment warmer, collaborative and Getting to know people in a way that you maybe haven't been able to when it's just go to a building, go to your office or laboratory environment. So there's a lot that we do in our human capital strategy to support our workforce. And, and that's just a couple.
0: That sounds like such a, an inclusive and collaborative environment to be a part of. Colonel Diller, you mentioned culture change and the people earlier as well. Can you give us some insight into your strategy and what Afworks is is doing for its people?
2: Absolutely. So one of the things we've looked to do, we have across the Department of the Air Force over 80 spark cells. So these spark cells are at the base level where oftentimes there's a location that they're working out of. Uh, many times this is kind of your, your SWAT team that the wing commander can go to if there's different types of innovations that are needed for the wing, or really as airmen are recognizing the problems that are out there. We've leveraged a lot from the Space Force. They really have some great approaches on this Sherpa model where they really pair the warfighter up with the technologist and with the small startup company as they're doing that. So making sure that we're creating approaches that allow that empowerment. That we're, we're giving them the tools so there's been a lot of training to allow them to understand, here's the type of money, here's the way contracting is done. So that those really cool ideas don't run into these really impenetrable barriers by making sure that we have the experts uh, across the different functional areas available there. And as we look to continue to build the team, one of the areas where we've looked to expand and, and maybe think a little bit differently is is a model where folks come into the government for a couple of years, have an opportunity to see this type of work. And when we start to show a little bit of the value proposition, the opportunity that is available for folks that come into AFWERX uh, really to have, one, the direct access to those 1,800-some startup companies that are out there, it's really a phenomenal chance for someone who's come out of a, a graduate program or even as an undergrad engineering is excited about the startup world wants to go start their own company Uh, the chance to come to afworks to see that many different companies and to get to work with those phenomenal technologists the scientists and engineers that are afrl you put that together uh, there's there's not many places where you're going to go to be able to get that breadth of technology exposure really to some of the the greatest technologies that uh, the air force research laboratory has been developed coupled with the exciting things that are happening in the commercial sector. So we see really profound opportunity here to even create greater diversity uh, and and really a, an idea that maybe it's okay to come into government, go out of government and flow relatively easily uh, back and forth, especially as we look at some of the startup companies. And even from a venture capital perspective, understanding, uh, we, we want to build that par- partnership. We need to build that partnership um, and opportunities for Uh, folks to come in and see that uh, and to work with the phenomenal scientists and engineers in AFRL, we believe is a pretty interesting value proposition that maybe we haven't had.
1: That's super fascinating. And I love seeing all the different forms of collaboration and sort of opening new doors to new and different people, because ultimately that's how we actually innovate, right? Innovation is so much about people and it is about inclusivity. And so just hearing all of the ways in which, you know, AFRL and AFWorks are doing that, you know, at sort of all levels of echelon is just, you know, really heartening to hear um, and something that also gives me a lot of faith in the ways in which we're going to be able to innovate for the future. And that actually brings me to my next question, uh, which is for the both of you which is, you know, I've done a lot of work looking at the future of air warfare and a little bit less, but still some on sort of space warfare. And I've been lucky enough to have a lot of conversations with leaders in the Air Force and the Space Force about this topic. I want to get your thoughts, both of you, about how it is that you think the nature of air and space warfare is changing and how is it that AFRL and AFWorks? works are going to really be stepping up to sort of meet those future challenges. General Pringle, if it's okay, we'll start with you.
3: Interestingly, there are some tenets that stay fairly constant over time. And I kind of mentioned those at the beginning, the things that you have to do, you have to understand the environment, share that information, and then operate. But we wouldn't have a research lab if those tools didn't change over time. And so that's really where we come in. And what I would say is that at this critical juncture where we have two services and an Air Force and a brand new Space Force, it's more important than ever that uh, we collaborate across both of them. And in particular, when you look at it from a technology standpoint, when we develop technologies, microelectronics or quantum or additive manufacturing, we want the application of that to be free flowing to the domain in which it will have the most impact. And so we have technologies go direct to Air Force applications or Space Force applications or both or in between. Because ultimately, we will be fighting wars in and through all domains and in conjunction with our joint brothers and sisters. So having that free flow and that multi-domain focus is really critical. So we're really honored to be one lab for two services. We wear that as a badge of honor. And I've got, you know, the Space Force patch on right now so that we can show that we support both services in word and deed. And Colonel Diller's been a great advocate for that as well. And I'll let him talk to some of the specific aspects that they have done in AFWORKS. Nate? Yes, and thanks.
2: There was a discussion, you know, a few years ago about the third offset strategy. And as you look at some of the different approaches, they continue to be by the vice chairman's chief of staff and continue to be echoed all by our department of the Air Force leadership. Areas where we really just, I don't think, can afford to fail are some of those areas like autonomy. How do you actually present mass in a way that is different than what we've done previously. And so this idea of projecting power, how do we become lighter? How do we have more intelligent systems? And there's great things that are happening across AFRL in that vein. How do we think about modularity? It gives us some agility to change how platforms act in theater? How do we think separately about mobility, reducing the deployment's time, reducing the logistics time, and then sustain them? Being able to have that reduction in fossil fuels and what are the technologies that allow us to do that? Necessary, I think, to, to look at some of those other facets. And, and then looking to, as we're doing many of these things, it, it takes that, that culture change in how we're doing this. You're seeing a lot of instances where we're Taking a slightly different approach to leadership in our Air Force, where once upon a time, we looked at deploying, you know, an entire fighter squadron as one. And now you start to think about how do you move just a four ship of fighters around? That's a, that's a different fighter pilot development program than when I grew up as a fighter pilot. That has to start early. That starts in the development. I think that's this discussion of bringing the warfighter technologists to fire together, having those pilots, having those maintainers that are going to be operating those environments together. There's really, I think, some exciting innovation still on our organizational structures and how we operate in these types of environments that we really haven't even started to touch on yet, but are going to be essential in order to operate in the future environments that are necessary out there.
0: Well, we want to be respectful of your time. I know we could sit here and just peg you with questions all afternoon. But you two are the experts. And so we like to finish the podcast with asking if there's anything that we might have missed that you want to highlight or maybe reemphasize for the audience.
3: I want to say thanks again for having us here today. It's been a real pleasure to join you, and it's hard to imagine that we missed any areas with the broad scope of topics that we've discussed, but I wouldn't mind just taking one minute to talk about the next generation of scientists and engineers that are out there. And I mentioned some of the development activities that we have for our junior force who are already employed by the research lab, but we do a whole host of things for the junior junior force or the next generation, the K through 12 STEM and high schoolers and internships for college students. There are so many ways that we're trying to reach out to them and get them excited about coding and airplanes and rockets and stuff satellites, because we know that it's a long journey to develop the background and the knowledge to support a career in STEM. And so if any of your listeners are interested in connecting with the research lab, or they can also connect with AFWorks, I'd encourage them to go to afresearchlab.com and we talk about opportunities for employment or college payback or any of the number of STEM outreach facilities that we have at our bases to connect with schools and nonprofits or college campuses around the nation. So we know that the future is a partnership with those that are outside the fence line. And so we really value all the connections that we have. So again, thanks for your time and having us. It was a great honor for me to be here and tell you a little about the amazing folks at the Air Force Research Lab.
2: So I would just have to echo really the same thing. As a pilot, I love flying things. As an engineer studying Astronautics. I love things in space. The, the tech is—it's just—it's—it's it's a ton of fun, right? But it really, 100%, it's—it's it's about the people and—and and how is it that you reach out to that eight-year-old little girl that loves drones and wants to grow up and learn how to build or fly those things? How do you how do you reach out to the folks who've been in in industry and maybe realize that now there's an opportunity to work in the government ways that hadn't before? So I do think that if there's nothing else, one of the things we've really done is to create that open door and to find if there is a way that you are interested in supporting the defense of this nation, now is the time to get involved. And you're not going to find a a better open door than the Air Force Research Lab. I certainly welcome that whole of government, that whole of nation effort. You're going to find a phenomenal group of people and teammates to work with.
0: I love hearing that. I know for me as a policy person who's always loved technology and space but never had that like science and math brain, this was the perfect fit for me to be able to host a podcast like this, do the research that I'm doing. You know, you don't know until you're exposed to people or ideas or opportunities like these. So what a great note to end on. Thank you both so much. It was an honor to host this discussion with you. We can't wait for the rest of the audience and the public to hear it as well. And so thank you again. Mad props to both of our guests for avoiding acronyms or at least defining them when they did say them. I thought that was fantastic and unexpected from people who sit deep, deep in the military and Department of Defense. Usually acronyms are the language. And so I'm so grateful that they kept it accessible to our audience?
1: Oh, absolutely. I find myself having to play the role of translator half the time. So it's nice to kind of take a break from that role and sort of put my analyst hat back on rather than translating very special acronyms mean to the general
0: layperson. <laughs> so I got a couple of like big things out of this that I think. Just kind of cross-cut from a lot of the technology-specific episodes we've done, and a lot of that felt really similar to kind of the software acquisition and the STEM workforce episode that we've done. To me, this is just like the pinnacle of all of this work and this ongoing conversation we've had but just specifically within the Air Force. And something that I was really taken by was both of them being so outspoken and supportive of a shift in culture. And whether or not this is just a talking point, or if it's true, and maybe Becca, you can help me unpack this from your expertise. But this shift in culture within the Air Force to better leverage commercial technologies to really embrace going faster or being open to fail, you know, the word failure, I don't love in this, but like risk and having a version two, a version three, updating that technology as you learn from when things don't work so well. But I was really excited by this reinvigorated approach to adopting these new technologies.
1: Absolutely. And so I think that's also about sort of this new mindset around technology adoption, but also the idea about capability development and sort of where that's shifting. So I think we saw in a lot of what they were talking about almost this bottom up approach to capability development where they go to the warfighters and they ask, you know, sort of what is it that you actually need at that unit level? How is it that you would use this in the field? What are some of your requirements? What are some of the things that you would change? And I think that that kind of bottom-up approach is something that is starting to become a little bit more popular within the Department of Defense more broadly, particularly as we've had a number of these innovation initiatives, uh, largely with industry. But this idea of involving that unit level in how you develop capabilities and technology is super interesting. Because if you look at the literature on military innovation, bottom-up process of military learning and adaptation, usually it's very much focused on like tactics, techniques, and procedures, you know, where folks kind of take this firsthand knowledge and apply it to try and inform change throughout an organization. And seeing that instead applied toward capability development is actually really cool. And I think the other element of that is bottom-up change or capability development, whatever it might be, the sort of shift in mindset. It doesn't happen unless you have buy-in from the top, particularly in these like large intransigent to change organizations that frankly, most militaries are, including the U.S. military. So looking at the ways in which we had two senior leaders in the Air Force, just like very much all about that bottom up capability development and the way in which they were championing it to like really sort of create something new and create something that's useful both with the emphasis on today but also what would be useful in the future I think was really great to see and I think that that's perhaps a mindset shift as you were talking about that you know hopefully
0: we'll see more of because I think that's where we're going to see the biggest benefit. It's like a meeting in the middle almost and I really liked General Pringle. Brought up not being constrained by today's technology and really embracing the future and like the flexibility of being iterative and forward looking. And it's really hard to inspire innovation if you're setting so many requirements based on what you know of technology today. And so I think AFRL in particular is that kind of what's next organization. And so I just thought it was a really interesting and good point.
1: The other part that they mentioned quite a lot when they were sort of trying to think about the ways in which you would need technologies in the future, wargaming came up a bunch. And I wouldn't be me if I didn't harp on the wargaming part because this is me, I'm a wargaming nerd. But, you know, they talked about how they were using wargaming to think about how some of these capabilities could be applied in the future. And sort of part of, again, this like bottom-up capability development process, right? Thinking about ways in which which... which you could apply these technologies in a fictional environment, the ways in which you could try and adjust them a little bit, you know, in the real world to try and make them more viable in some of those future scenarios which I thought was super cool. And then it also kind of had this weird secondary byproduct benefit of also familiarizing the warfighters, the folks, again, at that unit level with what some of those technologies might be. So however many years down the line when they are commanding a squadron or whatever, what is this new technology? They've already seen it in sort of that initial early stages and they understand a little bit better how it can be used and how it can be applied. And I think that kind of, Life cycle is really neat to say.
0: Well, and it it reminds me of a lot of our previous conversations about technology literacy at all levels. So often AI is a great example of this. It's like magic dust sprinkled on problems and AI is going to solve it. But part of the problem, as we've learned on the podcast with AI and other technologies, is that unless there is this literacy at the lowest levels, at all levels that are going to be using the data, implementing the data, what what have you, you have to have that understanding and exposure. You can't just hand them this AI driven solution because they have to know both the advantages and the challenges or the blind spots of these new technologies. And you're not going to get that by just handing someone something. You have to train them and get them up to speed and like make sure that they're all read into the whole process, not just the end state. Absolutely. And it's also about what
1: that technology is trying to achieve, right? Like, how does it fit into some of the broader operational concepts? How does it fit into a broader theory of warfighting? These are the things that are really important to kind of draw the threads across that sometimes I think we don't really do as much as we frankly should.
0: Yeah, well, there's like the, I don't even know if it's like a real saying, policy strategy and capability, like which one drives the other? Are you setting policies that determine your strategy, which then tell you which capabilities to invest in? Or are we stuck and we're investing in capabilities that are really driving our strategy and policy and being able to better balance that and make these informed future decisions? I think especially when you're looking at emerging technologies and future constructs, this is when this conversation is really important.
1: I want to say listening to, you know, General Pringle and Colonel Diller talk about particularly the big bets, right? Those newer technologies that they're really putting a lot of emphasis on and thinking about the ways in which those could be used those seem to sort of fit a broader shift in the Air Force, sort of thinking a little bit more about new ways that they are going to project power into the future, thinking about how it is that they can sort of do power projection in a lighter and more autonomous way. And I think this is in sort of a broader recognition that air warfare is evolving, but in addition to air warfare, the instrumentality in like the nature of air warfare is also changing. So as they were sort of talking about Skyborg, Golden Horde, NTS3, a lot of that is really pushing toward integration across domains, not just air and space, which is super important, but sort of across all domains, across the joint force and sort of thinking about the ways in which some of those could also frankly be extended to allies and partners. And I think that that's pretty interesting when you're trying to look at what is it that the Air Force is going to do next, what is it that they see as sort of the next big challenges, and how is it that they're seeking to overcome them, both in terms of strategy, but also the
0: capabilities? Well, I think we're going to dive into this question as well when we talk to the experts from the other services definitely on my list to ask, how do you make sure we're not stove piping these cross domain technologies with the construct of the services having the budget and actually doing the acquisition and procurement? And it also reminds me of our hypersonic weapons episode. We had Dr. Jillian Bussey, who's the director of the Joint Hypersonics Transition Office. And so she oversees every hypersonics like-esque program across DOD. And when she was naming them to us, it was like it was a shopping list. I mean, there were 10 of them at least. I did really appreciate that General Pringle and Colonel Diller brought that conversation up and were willing to talk and have had these conversations within AFWorks and within AFRL of how you can jointly integrate technologies because we're not gonna just be fighting a war in space or just fighting a war in the air domain. It's going to cross those domains and all these systems. And this is the challenge we also talked about with the electromagnetic spectrum and warfare episode when we talked about JADC2 and this joint all-domain command and control. It's just everything is becoming integrated, which means it's extra complicated. Good and bad problems, I think.
1: Fighting jointly has been a true problem, frankly, throughout history. and I think we're finding that now. And the joint force more broadly has some big plans. The idea of connecting every sensor with every shooter. That's going to be really, really hard to do in practice. And it's, you know, sort of how you break out from these inter-service rivalries to get folks to work together. If we want to do like a donning the masks of war 2.0, thinking a little bit about that. It's really, really tough to actually achieve. But, you know, I think there's been a real recognition that for some of the more advanced adversaries that the United States might actually face in the future, you need to be fighting jointly and you need to be finding ways in which perhaps it's an Air Force asset queuing a Marine Corps shooter. You know, the other thing that I'm not sure if you've gotten into in any of your other podcasts, but I kind of have a sneaking suspicion that you might Thinking actually about ways in which we could we could have the services pool some of their resources for joint capability development, as opposed to always developing their own separately in these silos and creating sort of these redundant systems and redundant programs and redundant technology that doesn't always net
0: us what it is we're trying to aim for. Well, and I think emerging technologies generally are such a good place to do this because as we've seen Things like biotechnology, quantum, AI, I mean, those are going to affect and be used by all of the services. And so I think you can, you really could hamper yourself if you silo them.
1: Absolutely. And if we can create constructs like AUKUS, where we're going to be cooperating with Australia and the UK on things like quantum technology, why can't we create a little consortium of the services where we can actually cooperate on quantum technology? That would be fantastic.
0: Well, Becca, thank you so much. I really appreciated your expertise on this conversation and endless thanks to General Pringle and Colonel Diller for taking their time to talk with us in such an open and candid way that I don't think we often get from military service members.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for letting me be here on Tech Unmanned. (laughs) Love it. (laughs)
0: As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review the series wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks.